Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, uh, joined by a special guest, uh, Katie Nielsen, uh, the Chief Education Officer from Voxy. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, happy to, happy to have you. Uh, and uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what, what Voxy is? Sure. Voxy is a web and mobile platform that we use to teach English to learners all over the world. So we work with private language schools, universities, corporations, governments, nonprofits. We can either offer a complete English language course, or we can offer the technology to supplement a course that already exists. Got it. Got it. And uh, we'll definitely dig into some of the complexities and uh, intricacies of teaching English uh, all over the world uh, through digital. So it's purely e-learning, right? It's purely e-learning, but it's both asynchronous and synchronous. So it includes virtual live instruction as well as self-study that's self-paced. Awesome. And... Uh, Again, like I said, lots to dig into on that. And then uh, your title is uh, Chief Education Officer, uh, which, which is interesting. So that makes you uh, a CEO of sorts. Yes, I'm the other CEO. Yeah. Um, it's funny, Chief Education Officer, I've said multiple times, sounds like a wankery made-up title. And it kind of is, um, but it really encompasses the person who's leading the pedagogic direction and the theoretical underpinnings and the outcomes-based research at an ed tech company. Right, right. So often the education part of ed tech comes with a subject matter expert who reports up to the head of product, but who has little oversight over how the pedagogy is actually implemented in the platform or product. And right. So it's really important to Voxy that our platform be based on what we know empirically works for language learning mm -hmm. and also that we continue to measure the effectiveness of the product to make sure that it works. Right. So right. my job is to oversee all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think we talked a little bit, uh, you know, heading into the conversation that, uh, Chief learning officer is another uh, term of art or term of industry that that's getting getting a decent amount of play. Uh, and you, I think, intentionally went uh, with chief education officer. Right. Well, chief learning officer typically is someone who's responsible for training and development within an organization. So mm -hmm. the chief learning officer is responsible for human resources type learning activities, professional development, making sure that staff are trained. Whereas the chief education officer is about making sure that the product that's being built can teach everyone who uses it. Yep. So I think there are some people who have the title chief learning officer, but we deliberately made the choice to go with chief education officer. Sure. It's funny though, because I generally talk about learning. Mm -hmm. um, I have learners, we have learners all over the world rather right. than talking about students, just because people learn in non-traditional contexts. For when sure. You, when you're talking about technology mediated learning, it often happens anytime, anywhere. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about e-learning uh, before as opposed to e-education. I guess it's tough to stack your e's like that. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it is ed tech. It's not learn tech. Right. But, uh, but we, we do talk a little bit on the show too, just about the distinction between education as uh, maybe the institutions and then learning as more of the personal uh, individual experience. And uh, sounds like, uh, I think that makes sense. yeah. And regardless of titles though, it sounds like, um, you're trying to reach learners and you're trying to help individuals learn English language. Exactly. And even if we're helping them through an institution, learning a language is learning a skill, which means it's a little bit different than learning a traditional content area. So if, when you study arithmetic, you need to learn to add, then subtract, then multiply, and there's a 
formula that you follow. Right. When you learn a language, you're learning a complicate how to use a complicated tool to accomplish something else. Right. So we teach people to learn languages by doing, and that means we need to start with what they actually want to be able to do. Right. So it's sort of a myth that you need to teach everybody apple and banana and book and airplane and then right. you can teach them to go have a business meeting or order a coffee or right. whatever like right. you can just start with the business meeting or the coffee rather yeah. than wasting all that time with words people don't know yeah where's the bathroom when's checkout time like like the, exactly. the real valuable things the valuable things that you need to know why are you arresting me <laughs> yes where's the u.s embassy yeah all those kinds of things yes. so um uh, but if i if i understand you right uh typically voxy is teaching a non-native English speaker how to speak English or yes. are you also, okay, so that, that is the primary focus. We, we exclusively work with non-native English speakers in mm -hmm. the United States and abroad. Right. And they want to learn English for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. Some people want to learn English because they want to go to a university in an English speaking country. Some want to get a promotion in their workplace and they're never going to leave their country, but they are in an industry that requires communication with other people in other countries and because English is the language that global commerce uses everybody speaking English some people want to learn English because they want to move to the United States some mm -hmm. people just want to understand song lyrics better some people here want to be able to understand their kids teachers or understand the labels on prescription bottles I mean we talk about starting with a needs analysis first mm -hmm. because we want to figure out what our learners need to be able to do in English and then give them the English they need to accomplish their real world goals. Yep, that makes sense. Um, and um, I, we talked a little bit about your your background and um, you know, you've know you traveled a, a bunch <laughs> and uh, been exposed to different cultures, uh, I guess really throughout your life. Um, how does that impact sort of your your philosophy or your approach to how people um, how people can can learn English more effectively? Um, so I have traveled a lot and I have lived and worked in Spanish speaking countries. Right now, I do a lot of travel to Brazil. Voxy works very closely with a bunch of private language schools and universities and corporations in Brazil. And Portuguese, I'm not great at Portuguese. Right. Um, so. I think it helps inform my approach to language instruction because I understand personally what it's like to be someplace where you don't speak the language and you have a need to communicate. Mm -hmm. So it lets me be empathetic when I think about how to build our courses. Mm -hmm. Because learning a language is learning a skill, you have to do it. And it's really hard to speak a new language and adults don't like sounding like they don't know what they're talking about. Right. So you are perfect at communicating in English, but if you needed to have this conversation in Spanish or any other language that you're trying to learn or learning, you would notice immediately that you sounded like an idiot. Mm -hmm. And most adults don't like that at all. Right. And so it's important um, to make sure that all of our learners understand that that minute or two of being uncomfortable and understanding that the only way to learn is to make mistakes is necessary for language learning to happen. Mm -hmm. We run into people all the time who say, oh, I took five years of Spanish in high school and I can't say anything. It's like, well, that's because you learned to conjugate boot verbs and how to memorize words, but you didn't learn how to say anything. And the right. minute you try to say something, you feel really uncomfortable, but there's no way to learn a new skill without kind of messing it up first. Like, right. If I wanted to teach an adult how to ride a bike, you're going to fall down. You're right. going to not be able to get the pedals to work. You're mm -hmm. going to feel like an idiot. If you, we were talking about driving. If you've always driven an automatic car and you get into a car with a manual transmission, the minute you start to drive, it starts bucking and you don't understand how to make it stop and it stalls and you feel like you don't know what you're doing. And that right. feeling is 
what happens. And so what's really important is making people understand that that's part of learning a new language. Right. And, and in some ways, uh, you know, not panicking and not getting frustrated and just giving up. Exactly. Like kids are so much more willing to look like fools and make mistakes. Like they're mm -hmm. learning to do everything. So they fall down. So they say the wrong words. So what they said makes no sense. Like who cares? Right. But adults, like we don't like to be wrong and different people, you know, we were talking earlier about learning styles and it's less learning style but more people's cognitive profiles some mm -hmm. people are more uncomfortable with not having all the information than others right some people really want explicit instruction they want to understand all the steps first and then they want to do it whereas other people are okay with learning things implicitly trying and failing and learning and learning by trial and error and mm -hmm. a lot of language learning has to happen that way yeah and is part of your uh part of your pedagogy or your andragogy, I've also heard, uh, yes. teaching adults. So as part of your educational philosophy um, about understanding the individual and understanding how each of us is different and maybe has different um, uh, cognitive or sort of social emotional uh, components to how we might learn English? Or is it um, you know, trying to get everybody up to some understanding, some sort of base concepts, like what's, what's the general approach? It's that it's personalized. Mm -hmm. And so in order to learn anything, you have to pay attention, but in order to learn a language, you really have to pay attention. So if I were speaking to you right now in a language you didn't understand and you stopped paying attention for one second, you would never be able to come back in and pick up where you left off. Mm -hmm. In English, like if what I'm saying is boring and you're sick of listening to me, you could start thinking, did I remember to turn the coffee pot off this morning? What am I going to do after work? Do I have to go to the gym? And I need right. to call my mom. Oh God, she's still talking. Like, right. <laughs> and then you would like pick up where you left off. So what happens with a lot of language instruction is we make students watch videos that they don't think are interesting. We make them listen to things they don't like and they can't make themselves pay attention. Right. So we try to make all of our instruction personalized so that people see right away the relevance of what they're learning and how it can apply to their real life because then they're motivated to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. So personalized instruction is very, very important for language learning. And then, like you said, the social emotional part and also understanding different cognitive differences. Those are things that we are starting to be good at figuring out with computers, but it's not perfect. Right. So the live instruction component of our platform is very much teaching our teachers to respond to learners' cues, yep. giving them feedback when they know the learner's ready to get the feedback. You know, mm -hmm. if you have someone who's a halting speaker and getting every other word out very slowly and they keep making a mistake, you're not going to interrupt that person. You just want that person to practice. Right. But if you have someone who's just breezing through and making all sorts of grammatical errors, but whose fluency is pretty good, that's a good person to say, okay, let's slow down for a minute. You mm -hmm. know, this verb needs an S on the end. Yeah. And so paying attention to how learners are responding is something that we have our teachers do. Yep. Yep. And um, I remember talking to uh, Michael Fitzpatrick from Polstring, who is uh, working more on the automated side. So like that was uh, more of a conversation about how to design um, uh, interactive narrative. So like having a conversation with an Alexa or a Google home or those kinds of things. And it was interesting talking through sort of the, the way in which uh, Polstring was thinking about designing those programs. Uh, in some ways, they were trying to teach their artificial intelligence how to use uh, safe like crutches. So like when, I, when, when you're confused. Say this. Say this. Is that, are there... Uh, where, where is it similar? Where is it different? Have, have you thought a little bit about, um, you know, the differences between 
teaching humans and then sort of uh, simulating human speech or, or human language. Is, I have. Uh -huh. and, and it's funny because people naturally, intermediate learners of any language, find those crutches and they have phrases, you know, they learn things in chunks and mm -hmm. they'll have a phrase they use when they aren't sure of what to say next. Right. I mean, I do it in Spanish all the time. And inter we talk about the intermediate plateau. People will get to be a decent level of their second language and find crutches and things to use to work around constructions they don't want to use or things they don't want to say. And then they don't actually make improvements because mm -hmm. they stay there using those crutches. So that's something that automatically happens in the language acquisition process. Uh -huh. what, what I think about more with machines is that we should be able to tell when is a good time of day for you to study. Mm. Like, when are you completing more activities or when are you just shutting your phone down and wandering away because you just can't deal with it anymore? Right. Or when is a good time to give you a harder activity because you're in the right mental place to deal with something that's more challenging? And when should we give you activities that just get you to keep practicing, but things that are not super challenging so that you stay with it? Yeah. That would be a great thing to use computers to do. We actually did a, an empirical study about a year ago where we took some cognitive profile tasks. These actually came from the Defense Language Aptitude Battery, which was developed mm. by the University of Maryland for the Department of Defense a long time ago to try to figure out which um, linguists could get to very high levels of language learning so that they would put them into language classes that would get them very high because mm -hmm. some people have an aptitude for language and some don't. Yep. We tried to use those cognitive tasks to figure out what kind of learners people were so that we could give them activities that made sense given their cognitive profiles. Mm -hmm. Like as I said before, some people are very good explicit learners and some people are better at learning implicitly. implicitly. Some people are good at disambiguating tones and mm -hmm. other people have trouble with that. So if we can figure out like what your processing speed is or how big your working memory capacity is, we should be able to tailor instructional treatments to dovetail with your cognitive strengths. Mm, mm, fascinating stuff. And it does speak a little bit to uh, the power and maybe some of the challenges of online learning. Yes. And I know that that's something uh, you've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, can you talk a little bit about... Um, you know, we like to talk about debunking uh, and, uh, you know, uh, demystifying things. Um, so uh, what are people getting right about online learning? And then what are, what are maybe some of the, the traps or the, the, the misperceptions that are out there? So when online learning first started, the big mistake everybody made was trying to replicate a face-to-face -face course in an online environment, taking PDFs, PDFs of textbooks and having people download them and read them and respond to asynchronous discussion forums over and over again, mm -hmm. and not trying to think first, how can I use technology to solve a problem that we have when we teach this in a face-to-face -face setting? Mm -hmm. um, and so now I think we're starting to see more companies, language course developers, people thinking that way, and that's definitely a step in the right direction. Yep. Like, learning a language, for example, there are some things that happen in a classroom that are great. Having a teacher interact with students, that's awesome. You have to practice speaking a language. What can we use technology to do to make that better? We can give learners access to all different kinds of fluent speakers of the language they're learning so they get real authentic practice. Mm -hmm. And we can tailor instruction. You know, everyone's learning a language for a different reason and they're all making progress at different paces. Instead of making everybody watch the same video or read the same article, we can let everyone watch articles and watch articles, <laughs> read articles and watch videos that they're actually interested in so mm -hmm. that they get much, more, they get much richer practice. Yep. And that's what we should be doing is 
using technology to solve problems that exist in education rather than trying to use it to replicate something that isn't necessarily the best way to teach someone something. Yep. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And then uh, I liked where you were going a little bit. One of the themes we talk about a lot is, um, you know, diversity and inclusion and, um, you know, the, the sort of the notion that one size fits none. So, exactly. you know, sort of speaking to the, the idea of wanting to personalize uh, the instruction. But I imagine um, the way different people speak English is widely varied. So, so like, how do you expose learners to enough variety so that they can comprehend and then also so that they can, in some ways, develop their own natural way of speaking the language. So adaptive learning and personalized learning, one of the, it sounds great and we definitely want to have that as much as possible because the best way to learn anything is to have a, like to have your own coach right. who's working just with you yep. to figure out your strengths and weaknesses and how to work with you and then giving you a course or a tutorial or a lesson that makes sense for you in any subject. That's super hard to do at scale. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're te talking about teaching something that has a predefined linear path, you run into holes where you can't get somebody the material that they need. Mm -hmm. Because learning a language is learning a skill. The most important thing is being exposed to rich examples of the language. It's actually easier to develop a program that can deliver personalized instruction if you use technology to develop some of the materials. So what we did was we sort of put a stake in the ground five years ago and said, we're gonna build an engine that lets us take authentic content and get 90% of the way there, turning it into lessons with computers and then the last 10% do with people. Yep. So at this point we add between 20 and 50 new lessons a day to our platform, all of which are tagged for topic, for content area, for the proficiency level for which it's most appropriate, for whether it's got a British English accent or an American English accent, if it's mm -hmm. appropriate for children or teenagers or adults, if it makes sense for business people, if it makes sense for people who wanna work in the, like we have a million different tags. Yeah. And then we can use those tags to surface this content to learners at the right time based on their needs. Yep. So you need a really big pool of content to do this. Mm -hmm. But if you have the big pool of content, then it's easy to do. And uh, that leads me to some, th like, uh, I love to talk about edutainment. Uh, yes. I like portmanteaus and among my favorite portmanteaus is edutainment. Um, so how do you think about that as those examples? I, I guess on the one hand, uh, you know, one of the positive aspects of uh, entertaining educational content is that uh, it earns attention. Exactly. Uh, I guess one of the potential challenges is that sometimes it's uh, a little too fluffy and uh, extraneous so that you don't learn the tougher stuff that that maybe you also need to learn um, how do you right. how do you think about how do you think about that so that's true i mean sometimes learning something is hard and you just have to do the hard work and that's sort of where i think what i think about gamification if it's very easy for you to turn learning something into a game then you're probably not teaching all the parts of it because some things you can't learn in a game like yep. you can't get a flower or a bell or fill your bucket with something if you're trying to learn how to do complex cognitive processing. Right. I think the best parts of edutainment are finding things that are naturally interesting to somebody so that they want to pay attention to them mm -hmm. so that they're entertained even while they're doing something difficult. Because right. 
we all learn to do hard things all the time and get absorbed in them and forget what time it is and don't realize we've spent so much time reading about whatever is interesting to us. So it's right. that sort of, I think that the concept of finding something that makes you forget what you're doing so you get absorbed in it is great. I mm -hmm. think when you try to take hard things and have puppets singing about them and like that's not going to work for everything. Right. And it, it is interesting too to uh, think about how one of the things we've done on this show is, you know, we, we talk about Game of Thrones or we yes. talk about, uh, you know, what's happening, uh, you know, in the NBA or, uh, you know, in the theater or whatever. And uh, to make more abstract content more uh, relevant, I, I imagine, and maybe this ties a little bit to the live part too, where like frequently watching, uh, Educating, educational or entertaining content is a bit of a lean back experience and maybe you, comp maybe you comprehend it, maybe you have the subtitles on, but you're not forced to really understand it and then generate your own words and your own language around it. Exactly. You're actually explaining a lot of the theoretical underpinnings of second language acquisition. Oh, excellent. Uh, <laughs> while talking about Game of Thrones too. Exactly. So that, that, that's a win-win. Um, can you talk, like we do a, we do a ton of live uh, at, at Kaplan um, and have found it, uh, you know, in the abstract, we do think, you know, uh, machine learning and automation is going to make it better and personalized learning will uh, reach a point uh, always at some point in the near future when uh, the sort of the human component becomes less uh, critical. Although that, that point in the future continues to stay in the future because humans like engaging with other humans. Right. And fundamentally language is a tool we use to connect to other people. Yes. And so you can't take people out of that. Right. Um, <clears throat> the thing about like watching Game of Thrones or basketball or a play that's great and that's all input so you're mm -hmm. absorbing it right. and if it's super entertaining and you're paying attention to it then you're getting lots and lots of content from it but like you have to be able to do something with it mm -hmm. and being able to take the information you've gotten from whatever that input source is and do something real with it that's sort of where the rubber hits the road mm -hmm. and if we make the content very entertaining then you probably will know more but like, no matter what you have to do, you have to give a lecture on something, teach someone else something else, apply it in a new way, go mm -hmm. to a lab and do an experiment. Like all those things require that you synthesize information you've acquired through input and you produce something. Right. Language is actually simple because all we're asking you to do is understand the input and then produce more language as the output. Right, right. And how do you think about nonverbal and paralinguistic uh, communication? So like, uh, you know, I like to, to talk because it's an audio show typically, although we're trying to get into video, uh, you know, how much are we talking with our hands? How much is our nonverbal communication part of what we're teaching? Also tone of voice. Um, are those things that, that Voxy super, gets into? Yeah, yeah. It's, they're super important. But what's, you know what's funny is one of the hardest things to do in your second language is have phone conversations mm. because you're missing all of the nonverbal cues and mm. language learners rely on them. Got it. Like if someone's looking at you with a very puzzled look, then you believe that what you're saying makes no sense, either mm -hmm. because you didn't understand the question you just got or because you, what you're saying isn't what you actually want to say. Right. And so if you don't have that and you're just relying on the other person speaking to you, it's a lot harder. Right. And that's something that people have to practice actually, having phone calls, because it doesn't work the same way as having a conversation in person. Yep. That's why all of our synchronous live instruction is all video-based so that people can get all of the gestures and expressions and all of the content that helps them understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. And... Um... Just around engagement in online learning, um, 
how do you measure engagement? How do you make sure that people are- We could do a whole podcast just on that. Oh, well, maybe uh, that's, a, that's a teaser for a future pod perhaps, but, uh, but can you give us uh, the, the, the brief uh, sure. version of that? Well, people don't know how to measure engagement with online learning as a fact. And so different companies, different organizations, different schools do it in different ways. Because do you measure the amount of time someone spends with your app open? Do you measure the time they spend reading? Do you only measure the time they spend doing activities? Like what is engagement? Mm -hmm. And we don't have good benchmarks for how much time people should be engaged. Because if you compare it to what recommendations are for college level classes, which are three hours of class time per week with six hours of time outside of class, well, in the three hours of class time per week, are learners engaged all those three hours? Are they learning something every minute that they're sitting in class? Mm -hmm. Are they learning in all the time they spend doing their homework? No. Um, and so when people look at how much time people spend on task in an online course and try to compare it to a face-to-face -face environment, we're comparing apples and like imaginary oranges. Like we don't know what we're supposed to compare it to. Right. And we don't have good benchmarks for how engaged is engaged enough. Mm -hmm. We know that spaced practice is better than mass practice. It's yep. better for you to come and do something three days a week for 10 minutes than it is for you to spend 30 minutes once a week. Right. But how many times should you do it and what should you do? The, this is what ed tech should be figuring out. We mm -hmm. have access to millions and millions and millions of examples of learner data, people who are in platforms and interacting and reading. We should be measuring all of that and figuring out what recommendations we should make because right now they're all just totally made up. Yeah, yeah. And the promise uh, seems a little bit ahead of the practical uh, insights. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And if you think about it, a, a let's take another example of a college class. I taught a graduate class of two years ago. And at the end of the semester, I would go to class I was giving a lecture to graduate students. None of them had done the reading. I right. mean, none of them. So I'm in there. I'm supposed to tell them something. No one's prepared for it. So what am I supposed to do? Do I leave because they're not ready to listen to the lecture I prepared? Or do I try to teach them what they would have gotten from the reading? Right. These are the most, arguably the most motivated students who are all working on things that are important to them. Mm -hmm. Think about students who are being forced to take a class someplace. They're not doing their homework. They're doing the bare minimum. They're right. coming in unprepared. They're trying to look at their phones under their desks. They're not paying attention. So right. are those the time on task standards we want to measure online education by? I don't think so, mm -hmm. but we need to change the conversation. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's why we're having uh, this conversation and, and teasing, uh, teasing into future ones. Uh, this has been a really uh, amazing conversation. Love to continue it uh, in the future. Um, as we're getting closer towards the end of the show, though, um, what are what are the trends that you're tracking? Like, what what are you seeing? Um, you know, what kind of data is, are you uh, collecting at Voxy that is sort of identifying where where the world might be heading? Uh, you're, I guess, a global organization, right? So, like, are there surprising or interesting trends that our listeners might be uh, intrigued by? That's a great question. And I've really enjoyed our conversation too. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, one of the things that we do is measure proficiency improvement over time because we want to make sure that our platform is working. And I would say that the most interesting trend I'm seeing from all around the world is that it doesn't take as long as you think to learn another language if you learn the right things. Mm. I think a lot of education, people spend lots and lots of time spinning their wheels, doing things that aren't actually helping them learn. Right. And if you spend your time in a focused way with rich, authentic input that gives you examples of how to use the language and you have the opportunity to use it into practice, we see people improve their proficiency level 
from beginner to intermediate, intermediate to high intermediate in 15 or 20 hours, mm. which is much, much, much less than what other people would tell you you need. Right. And I think a lot of it is because we're only measuring the time people spend actively learning and we're teaching them the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what, the, that's what technology can do to help us. It can help us personalize learning, measure progress so that we can refine the recommendations we make and make sure that we're helping people as efficiently and effectively as possible. Yeah, yeah, uh, great answer. And um, uh, sort of along similar lines, uh, language learning is unique in some ways. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, cause you're, yeah, I'm, just as you were talking, I was thinking about the motivation part, which is something we talk about a lot where, Frequently, there's a very um, intrinsic motivation from the learner to learn the language. So like the motivation problem, you know, in some ways they almost come to, to a program like Voxy motivated to begin with. And obviously you need to continue to foster that motivation. Um, but thinking about, you know, whether it's motivation or other, uh, other aspects of the language learning experience, um, which of those things maybe are more broadly applicable where like, like language learning may be ahead of the curve, but you're sort of noticing things that probably would apply to just about every learning context uh, or the flip side too. Like, are there places where stuff you were just talking about around uh, learning a language are really unique to learning a language and, and not as uh, abstractable, if that's a word? I, I think abstractable is a word. I, I, I think that the, the piece about motivation is important. I think when people can see right away that what they're learning is relevant, mm. then that helps. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it, it does make a lot of sense to do it the way I'm talking about with language learning, but so many traditional approaches haven't done it. They've taught everybody how to conjugate verbs, how to translate things, like what these 10 words mean. And so people sort of see that and they think, okay, I'm learning this. I will never be able to watch an episode of Game of Thrones <laughs> and understand what's happening from right. you teaching me these 10 words. Right, right. So I think with anything we teach, People get excited to learn when they feel like they're learning, when right. they understand that they've got some new piece of information that will help them do something else that they want to do. Yeah. And so that's the, the trick. And I really believe that personalization is part of the secret because we're all interested in different things. When right. we get free time on our phones, everyone does different stuff. Everyone wants to read different things. So we should try to find a way to make learning as relevant and accessible as possible in all contexts. Yeah, I, I really like that thinking because because uh, if I'm hearing you right, even the even the the traditional way to learn English, for example, maybe lacks the the relevance as part of the the study plan. So exactly like, as part of the learning objectives, one of them should be. And here's why this is important to you. Exactly. And even with children, with things like math, like why are we teaching them on a piece of paper with a pencil to learn fractions? Like give them something to manipulate. Let them see that if you take this apple and cut it in half, you have two halves. It's the kind of thing that when teachers have time and space to be creative and think about how what they're teaching applies to their students in the real world, they are all inclined to do. And so infusing that into more education is important. Yeah, um, would love to continue, but, uh, but I think we're coming up on time. Um, if any of our listeners want to learn more about you or about Voxy, uh, what's, the, what's the best thing for them to do? Go to our website, voxy.com. Okay. Or email me, katie at voxy.com. Awesome. Uh, katie Nielsen, uh, Chief Education Officer at Voxy. Uh, really enjoyed our time together. Uh, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Yeah. And uh, to our listeners, uh, you know, we'll be back uh, same bad time, uh, same bad channel, uh, Tuesdays for our regular show. And then we're trying to get 
trying to get those extras out. Uh, we've been getting good uh, response uh, for really from both types of shows. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back again soon.